0: In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods.
1: I always think about, I want to know what really happened.
0: So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved.
2: It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have.
0: I'm David Ridgen and this is Someone Knows Something Season 8. The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast.
3: Friends, the following episode is a powerful one. It is a beautiful story about the coming together of a community and the strength of young women leading a resistance. But it also deals with some disturbing content. Please take care. So, do
1: Manitou, Manitou, Abindigan, come in. Creator, come in. The sacred space with a sacred fire.
3: There is a fire burning at the heart of Turtle Island where two rivers meet in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The fire burns at Camp Mercedes in honour of Mercedes Myron.
4: She had a really bright smile. She could light up a room for sure.
3: Mercedes is one of four women believed to have been murdered by the same man her remains are thought to be in the prairie green landfill just outside the city. Winnipeg police believe Morgan Harris is also buried there.
5: My mother was an amazing woman. She was a mother of five. The remains
3: of another unidentified woman named by the community as Buffalo Buffalo Woman is still unknown. Police already found 24-year-old Rebecca Contois at a second landfill last year. The young mother, friend and daughter was a member of Crane River First Nation, but grew up in Winnipeg. When Rebecca was discovered, it led police to a serial killer. Rebecca was found in a garbage bin within city limits and in the Brady Landfill. It's there that a camp was set up, in the midst of a cold December winter. A resistance that at first blocked access to the dump site, but now stands vigil. Even as garbage trucks pass them by, they raise their voices and repeat the call. Search the landfill. And bring these women home. Hello and welcome to our 10th season. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. There is a history of resistance in Winnipeg. Idle No More, Drag the Red, and today, Search the Landfill. After a hot summer on the front lines, Winnipeg is a hotbed for resistance. Ground Zero. It's a call to end the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirit people. And it's being led by young women, the voice of a nation.
1: This is a strong warriors battle we're fighting. And most people at the front line and the back line have been the women. The women warriors have been there the strongest, the most consistently not giving up.
4: Hello. How are you? My name's Jordan Myron, sister of Mercedes Myron. We are set up at the Canadian Human Rights Museum. We're on day four of camp, and uh, we plan to stay here until there's a search done. Thank you guys so much for coming. It's so hot out, so this is like day two that it's been really, really hot. So it's long, hot days. We're we're, uh, suffering out here, but I know it's for the right cause, so. We, out like yeah. <laughs> we got a lot more set up. We're just uh, getting everything put together here and uh, getting more tents. And uh, we're right beside the forks, and we're really close to downtown. And we just have a bridge right behind us, that like a walking bridge. So we have lots of traffic going in through here each day. We have more people coming. Nice right mm-hmm. Thank yeah. you very much. To see you guys. Thank you guys. Uh, a lot of people don't even know what's happening, so we're educating people on the cause that we're fighting for, and everyone's been pretty good. We have got a few people that have been a little bit rude, but it's to be expected. Not everyone's going to be nice, right? Thanks so much. How long are
1: you Until they dig up the bodies out of two landfills.
4: Mm-hmm. Until. Yeah, yeah. I feel uh, her presence all the time, actually. We're five years apart. She um, was very outgoing. She had a she had a really bright smile. She could light up a room for sure. Uh, she loved to go on adventures. She was an artist. She loved to draw eyes was her one thing. Um, it's funny that we have uh, camp set up here because we would always sneak out and go to the forks. So we, it's uh, pretty cool that we have it here. It gives me like memories of her a lot. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> we were raised in a house with a lot of children like so with a lot of cousins probably over (laughs) ten yeah so yeah there's a lot of us that grew up in a house together and we're kind of all just super close and Mercedes has another sister named Brandy and a a brother named Andrew Mm -hmm. and then all cousins yeah (laughs) yeah family's really big for us so we stick together in the beginning doing the news conferences and press conferences and just all the media i had a lot of anxiety and i always like you know felt like i was gonna cry in the beginning just because of what it's about but also nerve-wracking i guess i think that uh going through all of this i've definitely found my voice and uh i know i've always had it but it's definitely gotten louder now and uh i'm speaking out a lot more now because of what's happening fighting for my sister
3: That's Jordan Myron, sister of Mercedes Myron. This past July, Camp Mercedes set up near the Canadian Museum for Human Rights at the Forks, a popular tourist attraction. Family, friends, and supporters want to bring calls to search the landfill to a more public setting. Camp Mercedes is the second camp built out of this movement. The first was set up in December and was named for Morgan Harris. Cambria Harris is her daughter.
5: Does this one
3: work? Here, you
5: press it down here. So it plays like the Sakura songs. This is a Japanese music box in the shape of a piano. on On the inside of the grand piano is where the actual music box mechanism is, which I find really, really neat. But I like them because they're remnants of the past and little things that I can hold on to.
3: I've been staring at these clocks of yours for a
5: little while. Tell me about them. They're so pretty. So these are glass dome clocks, and at the very top is the clock, and then beneath it is almost like four little eggs that spin around in a circle on a pedestal. And then the other ones are gold-plated quartz clocks with a carousel underneath it that is hand-painted So these used to be really popular in, like, the 70s or 80s. You might have seen them in your grandmother's cabinets. (laughs) But I like them because they're quartz clocks, and there's something special about quartz clocks because they use a certain vibration to have a more accurate reading of the time. I find these really cool, and I have a weird obsession with time because, I don't know, I guess, like, I think it's good to keep track of time and keep track of the minutes of your life and don't take that kind of time for granted, and so I like to keep that as a reminder for myself.
3: Cambria, thank you so much for having us in your home. We really appreciate this. Yes, of course. Thank you. Now, people describe our missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and Two Spirits with statistics, with news clips, with empty political promises. How would you describe it as someone who is going through it?
5: I would describe it as a systematic failure that needs to be completely reworked, not just re-looked at, but reworked completely, because what we are doing in terms right now is not working. When we look at these statistics, if we follow them so closely as people do, why are we not questioning the fact that indigenous women have a much higher rate of going missing or murdered than a non-indigenous person? Four indigenous women were targeted by a known serial killer here in Winnipeg, Manitoba, one of those being my my mother, and they ended up in a landfill where he mercilessly dumped them and then with that being said it's it's still going on with in terms of woman going missing on the streets day after day in terms of woman being pulled from the river on waterfront drive here it's it's scary and it's horrible What's happening
3: mm-hmm. and you are of course living the horrible nightmare in real time um, having your mother disappeared Um, and being one of those people
5: that may be in that landfill. Can you tell me about your mom? My mother, Morgan Harris, was an amazing woman. She was a mother of five. Um, She gave birth to me at the age of only 18 years old. And then only a year and a half later, she went on to have my sister, Kira. A few years later, goes on to have my um, brother, Janelle and Seth. And... At the age of six years old, I was mercilessly ripped away from my mother due to the hands of the system of CFS, the child welfare system, and I was pushed through that for 10, 15 years all the while my mom struggled on the streets um, while we were talking about like empty and broken promises. Um, Those same empty and broken promises are given by that same system promising a change and a better life for you, but they give you two weeks of treatment and whatever shelter they can scramble and then they throw you back to the sharks and it's horrible and that's what happened to my mom, you know. I can point to all the places that it, that the system and this trauma has failed my mother, like intergenerational trauma. It's trauma that was unfairly bestowed upon you due to something that happened to you a generation, a generation before you and like with the residential school system and in terms of the 60s scoop and all of that like my great-grandmother rose harris was a part and she went through residential school system and she she suffered the effects of it as well as her daughter my grandmother candace harris as well who went on to give birth to i think it was eight children and one of those being my mother and a large portion of them being pushed through child welfare system where These systems they they fail you and then it was the fact that my mother had her children ripped away from her home and her children were her home it was where her heart is and they say like heart is where where the home is but what happens when they take your heart and your home away Mm. and that's that's what happened to her yeah and then while being pushed to that system along with my sister and I and losing contact with my mother, she ended up on the streets. Yeah, And my mother was a homeless and, and vulnerable and indigenous person and she shouldn't have had to have gone what she had gone through. Yeah. And it's just, it's horrible.
3: And as you had said, you were put in the child welfare system at six and all of these things are connected, residential, school... the the child welfare system, all these disconnections from family, um, and you were very young, how did that separation, that separation from your heart and home, as you say, impact your relationship with your mom?
5: It impacts it greatly because as a child, no one one gives you the full truth, right, in terms of the system. They only give you the one-sided story, and that's the story that plays in their favor to keep you locked within their arms. And within four years, I was already a permanent ward. So my mom had no chance of getting my sister and I back. Um, And the way it impacted the relationship with my mom was, there were times that it wasn't my mom who cut off contact. It was the child welfare system that's saying that, no, you can't talk to your mom because she's not following through what what she said she would. But the, the fact that my mother wants to talk to me In itself should have been enough Mm -hmm. And showed that she was still there as a parent And as a child and as a mother You should have that right And then when I did have contact with my mom It was very limited Like I remember a lot of the time we had to have Supervised visits at the office I never felt safe in those visits Having all these eyes watching me I would have much rather felt safe Within the comfort of my home And I think a lot of that was very very triggering for her Having to go back to these same offices that they pull her back into with meetings behind closed doors when I'm not, not around.
3: Yeah. How often did you worry about your mom as you were growing up, separated from her?
5: Oh, every single day, because despite the fact that CFS said we had to have supervised visits, we still went and we visited my mom behind closed doors. And when I did go see her, you know, we would go walk up and down main street and stuff and she would show me she would say look this is this is what your mommy's going through like and i'm not going to beat around the bush about it this is i'm struggling and i'm not going to lie to you this is why i can't be there and even though i didn't understand it as a child i kind of did i understood well yeah mommy can't be there and there's a reason behind it it's not just because she doesn't want to be Mm. and that's what people fail to see they see they see addiction as something that you do yourself but i think that we need to start treating addiction and as a as a disability you know what i mean because it is it affects your mental illness it affects your physical illness it changes your whole brain chemistry and that's what people fail to understand but i i worried about her every every single day like growing up as a child like I uh, when my mom would stop sending letters, I would I would get worried any time it rained, any it got cold. I would pray that she had somewhere to shelter or somewhere safe. But I knew she knew how to survive at the same time, and I always told myself that one day I, I am going to go try to pull her out of there some way or somehow. But I was only a child then, right? And you realize that it's not just that easy. It's that whole. It's all those barriers and all those cracks that they let my mother fall through that I got a battle at the same time.
3: Mm, yeah, but you never doubted that she loved you.
5: Never, never, not for a second. My mom was always trying to be there in some way, shape or form up, up, up until the end. Like on my 18th birthday, she sent me this long birthday message and I hadn't spoken to her in a very long time. And she just said like, hey, I hope you're doing good. Like I saw you, saw you're doing good in school. Like I hope you're gonna graduate and things like that. And that was odd for me because I I wasn't expecting it, right? And for my mother to go out of her way to use someone else's Facebook and send me this long message was heartwarming in itself. And I've told this story a couple of times, but like on my sister's seventeenth birthday. Um we weren't home at the time, but my mother had taken it upon herself to go to the house and she dropped off a birthday card with a coloring page that she filled in along with some money in the letter and it was eighty dollars and my mom left it in the mailbox and my sister didn't see it till she got home and my sister felt horrible because she she felt like she didn't deserve that money because she Mm -hmm. knew my mom needed it more and so for my mom to go out of her way and commit such an act is just shows how selfless of a human being that she was and that's what she was known for and she was known for just being her um, and everyone on the streets knew her and that was what was kind of scary about it was because I always had some contact to keep an eye on her whether it was not directly through her I could just make a post on Facebook and say hey has anyone seen my mom for a while but then I saw the missing persons poster and that's where it all changed.
3: This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice One. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. My feature guest today is Cambria Harris, daughter of Morgan Harris, one of four women police believe were killed by the same man and buried in a landfill just outside of Winnipeg. The community is calling to search the landfill, they are holding vigil at two camps until the women are found and returned to their loved
0: ones. This is uh, day seven at Camp Mercedes.
3: There they keep a sacred fire. Seven days for the camp means seven days of non-stop burning.
0: Seven days, seven days now, strong. No matter what condition the weather is, it keeps going, keeps burning, and it will keep going. As long as people are here that want to keep keep it going, it will stay here. My uh, name is uh, Gold Star, and I'm a firekeeper. So those grandfathers are the big rocks, circular or whatnot, and then the smaller ones are grandmothers. So it depends what you're doing, because some people tend to have the four in four directions. Yeah. So they're used for prayers and stuff to, to help others and themselves, and sometimes to heal. I've seen people come and talk about residential schools or um, uh, their experience with the 60 scoops or their experience with CFS, and they base them talking about it as part of the healing process. We all have fire inside. We have an inner flame, and the more I'm around the fire, the more my flame grows, and the more the fire grows, the more the flames of everybody else grows as well. It's all about positivity, uh, peace, love, and respect, and unity, and that's what you see around sacred fires. This one's very important because it's trying to bring to the forefront the landfill. They won't search it, no matter what kind of options was put on the table. It, it doesn't make any sense at this point. They're spending all this money for all these ridiculous projects, but they won't check the landfill. There's enough support. I, I had guys come up to me and tell me they're willing to go to the police station with a shovel and are willing to dig themselves.
5: Okay.
3: When did you first feel like that there was something really wrong? When you saw the poster or before?
5: Um. Well, first I saw the poster. That would have been May 2022. And then we immediately started searching in it. And we had gone and checked under the Disraeli Bridge, all of these old encampments. And, like, some of them were, were, like, actual homes, people had beds in there they had like some curtains and stuff like it was well protected and you could only get to it from a certain spot like you would never know they were there and so I was hoping that my mom might have been staying in there because every encampment or somewhere we went to had scattered fragments of like women's clothing and so I was hoping well hey maybe this is this is a sign of my mom but it never was any homeless shelter that we went to go check was was a dead end it was no she hasn't been seen in two months and my mom wasn't seen at the Israeli shelter for two months like she hadn't used her bed in two months and that's when the alarms in my head really really started to ring because my mom had never ever been reported missing in all of the years of my life I always or someone always knew where she was what she was doing like she was always around Main Street and then they found Rebecca Contois. And that's when the alarm bell started ringing. Mm -hmm. Because then I started making the connections. I was looking back at when we were searching for my mom. At that same time when we were searching for my mom, we were searching for Mercedes Myron as well. And then one month later, they find Rebecca. Then they find the killer. But Rebecca's partial remains were discovered in a bin, and then the rest were found in the landfill. So if it was that easy for him to do that, then how many others could there have been? and that was my thought back in me and that's what everyone else had been saying because there had been rumors for years upon years that there has been a serial killer in winnipeg again, numerous at that and and so for when rebecca was found that that in itself was scary and that was june july i believe when they made that announcement and the months went by me wondering where my mother was Us still tracking trap house after trap house like needles scattered hundreds of them everywhere um shady people and shady business that we probably shouldn't have been dealing with but it was the fact that we needed to find my mom but um when september came uh winnipeg police homicide unit had contacted me asking me for a dna blood sample for the missing persons national database and so what this database is is a database across the world so it's worldwide i believe and if something ever happens to your missing loved one or you, they will be able to retrieve your DNA through that forensic evidence. And so when they had asked me that, that in itself was weird because why would they be asking me for for a DNA sample all these months later and not from the very, very beginning? And then two months later, it gets announced that my mother is a victim of a homicide on December 1st, 2023. How did you even begin to make sense of that
3: after searching for her and holding on to hope and searching and searching to know that that's what they are pointing at now.
5: Honestly, it was the day of the homicide when they sat my family and I down telling us that my mother had fallen the victim to a homicide of a serial killer as well as three other women. Mm. But the only thing they could tell us at that moment was that it was the same guy that had murdered Rebecca Contois, but they couldn't tell us the other woman's names yet because the family still hadn't been spoken to, and there hasn't been an announcement. And they couldn't—they couldn't really tell me anything. And I said, "Well, do you do you know where she is?" And they said, "No, we don't have a body," and that was all they could disclose at that time.
3: Had they been keeping you in the loop during this uh, while you were searching? Was there any contact with the police at that
5: nope. during that time? No, nope. no contact. Uh, at all with the police besides the DNA blood sample. Like, we were sending in some tips and stuff when things would come in, but that was about it. But there was never no communication between the two parties during the time that my mother was missing, and it was it was frustrating because after the announcement of the homicide that same night, I went to a vigil held at the serial killer's house, and that's only just, like, five, six minutes away from my house here. Mm-hmm. Um, So that leaves me wondering how many times have i crossed paths with this monster right how many times has anyone else crossed paths with this monster when he was known to utilize these resources to pull in vulnerable indigenous women it's known that he went to these shelters even though he had a home he went to these shelters utilized the free lunches and stuff and he would go and he'd pray on these women and honestly i think he would say hey i have a spot i can keep you warm i can keep you safe i have things to make you feel good like anything, and to lure them in and bring them home, and when the shelter's just eight minutes that way, his home to the left of me his home eight minutes to the right of me, that's not a far distance by by bus, and the bus stops right outside of the Disraeli shelter, so it's it's not hard at all.
3: This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. My feature guest today is 22-year-old Cambria Harris. Her mother is Morgan Harris, who police say is buried in a Winnipeg landfill. Oh boy. <laughs>
2: Canada. Canada.
3: Canada. Well, doesn't it derive from Ogonicahora? No. It's a village. It's
4: As Indigenous people, we are used to our stories getting a little twisted. So listen up as we set the record straight. I'm Ganyetio. Please join me as we hear from dozens of Indigenous people. Together, we will decolonize our words and our minds on the Telling Our Twisted Histories podcast. You can find episodes on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Is it true that they pulled you into a room and gave you a PowerPoint presentation explaining why they weren't going to search for your mother in the landfill?
5: Yep, so after the night of the vigil outside of the serial killer's house, um, or that same night that we held the vigil there, there were various news outlets and media and they had asked if I wanted to speak about my mother. So I went and I said, like, hey, they don't know where my mom's body is like we need to find her and we need to do something about this yes. and because i said that on national television um they took notice of that and somehow the word got out that i was going to Ottawa to Parliament Hill to speak at a press conference on the tragedy that had happened to the four women one of them being my mother and so the night before keep in mind this is only a few days after i just found out my mother was a victim of a homicide Um, The day before I had gone to Ottawa, I went to the airport and on the way to the airport I suddenly got a message that the Winnipeg police was going to meet us there. The Winnipeg police met us at the airport, literally held my plane and my family's plane to talk to us and they sat us down before we had boarded with this tiny little laptop and they sat us down and they said, look, this is where your mother is believed to be. She is believed to be in the Prairie Green Landfill. And people are saying that she's in the Birdie Landfill right now because they made the connection with Rebecca Contois. And so I looked and I was like, well, how long have you known that my mother has been there? And they said, since June of last year. And so in my head, I had already been taking notes of all of this over the months and documenting everything. So I said, so you knew since June of last year, you failed to- to take my blood sample, he didn't take it until September. Then my mother wasn't identified until December first. That's 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 wrong, and that's an injustice to, to her and to these other women.
3: And when they when they gave you that PowerPoint presentation and said they weren't going to search for your mom in that landfill, what was your immediate reaction?
5: It was gross because they had shown me. So they had shown me photos of the birdie landfill, and then they had shown me photos of the prairie green landfill, comparing the both of them, saying that, oh, well, the birdie is it's so much smaller than the Peregrine, you green. Know? The prairie green is a much larger acreage. It would be like be like searching for a needle in a haystack. But I learned later on, through talking to the prairie green landfill manager and the birdie landfill manager, when we had gone to the sites to do ceremony on the site where Rebecca Contois was found, where they explained how these cells and how these dumps are started from the very beginning to end, how they close them off. They're comparing apples to oranges, those two landfills. And when they were comparing the two landfills, what they were comparing was the overall acreage of the landfill and not the cells of where they were believed to be. And it's absolutely disgusting that they would try to use that kind of decision, the sheer size to overrule human dignity and human justice for a, a dead body and a burial.
2: It's deadly tribal drawing, eh? Does it look like tribal drawing? Are you doing tribal drawing?
6: I'm still learning, though. It's a long process.
2: It is, but it looks good, though.
6: Hi there, my name is Link. I'm a Two-Spirit Shihwakmik, and we've been at this camp, Mercedes, for 20 days now. It's super cool. We have the cool breeze coming, and it's nice because it's been so hot. Some days where some of our warriors and pe- members have got like a heat, almost heat stroke. So on nice, blue, windy days like this, it's, we're very thankful to ancestors for that. <laughs> So here in the center, we have the medicine wheel, very powerful symbol. And we have those red hands around it to represent our missing murdered men, women, two-spirit children. And then above us, we have some red ribbons. And they have the names of those that have had their lives taken from them. And there's also extra ribbons for if more families uh, come by, they can write the names of their loved ones very thankful to be here and just uh yeah help put up some of the art displays we put up some more ribbons in the front there and some dresses there you can see blowing in the wind they're on a post and we're also hoping to get some lighting to like really light them up at night too so they each have their own light and each one also has a name on them too I'm from Toronto and my ancestors told me to drop everything and come out here so I just listen to them when they tell me to do stuff and being here has been very healing lots of ceremony happening and uh, it's just such an honor to be here for those families you know even times we get exhausted and tired it's just that love from community and and those families that keeps us going and gives us all the energy and love that we need. So I would say when it comes to resistance, um, our art form comes in many styles, from like um, totem poles to on canvases, earrings, beadwork, baskets, weavings. There's so many different ways to create different art forms. And it's all starting to come back. And I think right now it's just such an act of love and decolonization bringing back our art because it was taken away from us. A lot of our traditions and ways of being that brought us that healing and that joy and that community. When families share to me about the experiences of their loved ones being taken away from them, it usually happens like I'm doing something or there's art or there's butterflies and there's these symbols and they're like oh my gosh this reminds me of my my daughter this reminds me of my loved one that's been taken away from me and then it opens up that story and when they're able to share that with me like it's 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 such an honor and it really pushes me forward to wanting to make sure that our women our two-spirit men children are all found and brought home and they're going to be brought home there's no doubt in my mind uh, we're not going to stop until as many families that we can you know help That's, uh, it's uh, it will spread that ripple effect you know
2: you're
3: listening to unreserved on CBC Radio 1 Sirius XM US Public Radio and Native Voice 1 I'm Rosanna Dearchild My guest today is Cambria Harris. She is the daughter of Morgan Harris, one of the four women murdered by a serial killer, and police believe is buried in a city landfill. Cambria, her family and supporters, have been pushing for action from all levels of government. Earlier this year, Ottawa provided $500,000 to the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs to see if a search could be done at the Prairie Green landfill. The study concluded a search is feasible. But Manitoba's progressive conservative government says no search will be done.
4: Is that good? Okay. So this is not about funding. This is about the safety, and it was in the report itself. This is about the safety of those individuals who would be conducting the search. I mean the landfill is full of toxic waste um, and uh, you know that is identified in the report. And in the report itself, it identified yeah, you know that there are safety risks, and we are very concerned about that.
3: That's Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson speaking at a press conference in July. Unreserved reached out for comment from the Premier's office, but none was received at the time of this recording. Cambria and her supporters continue to apply pressure to all levels of government. She even took it all the way to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau last December.
5: It was a very brief meeting, so I just happened to catch him at the AFN conference on the last day. I should not have to stand here today, and I should not have to come here and be so mad and beg and beg so that you will find and bring our loved ones home. He was speaking, and so we had asked if we could meet him, my family, and he agreed, so when we had when we were waiting for him all of his secret service guards were standing around with us and then Trudeau walked in the room and he tried to just kind of play it off like hi I'm so sorry for your loss I'm sending my deepest condolences to you what happened is a tragedy and that's when I looked at him and I said yeah it is a tragedy and you know what my mom's lying in a dump right now quite literally a landfill as well as two other women one who they found last year And they have known since June of 2022, they take my blood sample in September and then did not announce it until December 1st. And he was just kind of taken aback by it. And he was like, "Uh, uh, okay, I'm just going, we're going to do everything that we can. And that was it. And he kind of, then he asked, can I give you a hug? And I was like, okay. And he gave us a hug. And next thing you know, he was out the door. And it's frustrating because people think oh well you can just just go and do it just go and search it's not that easy they're gonna come and absolutely arrest me they're going to hit me with whatever they can to stop me from searching because they know that when these landfills get searched they are going to open a whole can of worms because that dump has been open since 1973 and it has a lifespan of 50 to 100 years how many bodies are ending up in there and how many have been there previously Mm
3: mm-hmm Mm -hmm.
5: it's it's absolutely mind baffling in this feasibility study that we did we didn't just have everyday people on this study we had the forensic anthropologist from robert picton's farm on it we had all levels of like waste disposal canada and like waste connections working with us we had all kinds of different experts from all different departments to help sit down and try to figure out how we can make this possible and it is possible they even had different levels of government sitting on there. And then for the progressive government to tell me that on the day of sitting down with her on July 5th, 2023, saying that she had not, she had only skimmed through the feasibility study, even though it had been two to three months, was a slap in the face itself. It was absolutely disgusting because why are you even sitting in that chair? And then for her to release a statement saying that. She speaks on behalf of all Manitobans defending her decision to not search the Peregrine Landfill and pointing fingers back to the federal government, who has said that they will help search, they will help fund it, they will help commit in some way, shape, or form of all levels or some form, step up to the plate and work together with them so that it's not just one sole party. But that in itself is frustrating, making this a political battle between parties and not making it about the justice for the woman just further perpetuates the racism and amount of violence that Indigenous people face every single day.
3: On the flip side of that, you have had a groundswell of community support uh, from the Indigenous community, from various unions, and um, lots of calls joining you to search the landfill. How would you describe that support?
5: It's absolutely amazing because this is not just about the... The indigenous community it's about you know well the way i like to describe camp morgan is it's it's a memorial encampment on behalf of my mother because my mother was a struggling vulnerable person on the streets who had never had a home and so this was about giving her that home in the afterlife while she is still stuck between the spirit world and the waking world while providing a healing and safe space to to the community who wants to come down and pay tribute to to our missing loved ones And so We've had community support from far and wide From such as Germany I've had people fly from like Sweden I've had people from all across Turtle Island And just come down even People just driving driving past the landfill um, And then Seeing this giant wigwama teepees They're taking mm. it back so they go and they're curious And, and what's crazy Is people are so out of touch with the world nowadays is that they have no they had no clue that four indigenous women were were dumped and how it continues to to go on this this painstakingly ever-rising ever-rising amount of violence to to indigenous women and and people it's hard for people to grasp that concept because they've they've grown up so so shielded from the horrors of the world and they've always had that privilege of not having to ever fear of what that's like or having to live with that fear of going going missing or going murdered um, they've never had to deal with that
3: as you mentioned um, there were two camps set up for mm-hmm. for our women the first being Camp morgan named for your mom What what did it take to gather people for that for that movement
5: Well, Camp Morgan was started on December 18th of 2022, but prior to that, we did three days of blockades, and we decided to do the blockades because back in Ottawa, I had said to a couple reporters that when I go back to Winnipeg, this this isn't the end, and so we did three days of blockades, and... The blockades were to make a stance that you know what this isn't okay you guys need to start acknowledging what is happening because it's continuing to happen and the fact that the city is still continuing to dump in surrounding areas on a known burial site i don't understand that when you continue to do this you are becoming a part of the problem when you are not doing something about the problem you are further contributing to that problem and then becoming a part of it and it's everyone's part to try to make a change in some way shape or form whether that be minuscule whether that just be spreading the word and talking about it at a dinner table but you need to stand there and face us and acknowledge it because people look at indigenous women as a story once they're murdered and then it goes away but they forget about the surviving families that are still there fighting for their justice and it's not just my family it's hundreds and dozens across Canada and and the world If you are an indigenous person this is something that happens to you anywhere and that's what's crazy that is what's so mind-boggling about it
3: Mm -hmm. how would you describe the the first days at at that camp
5: it was cold it was december 18th and so that was when the cold snap was coming in i remember some days we were battling 60 kilometer winds we lost tens upon tens uh so many poles bent it was horrible <laughs> but it was also beautiful because we had a purpose to be there and that was to keep that sacred fire lit and the sacred fire acts as uh acts as a beacon to to guide whoever is lost between this world and the spirit world back to back to creator or home wherever you want to be so this fire acts almost as like look at it as a teleporter teleporter almost where you can come out of the fire go say hi to your loved ones go back on your journey kind of thing and this journey is your as i've i've been taught a few different ways but my favorite one is you're going through through a lake a long long lake full of mist and fog and in the distance you see this fire and you follow that fire to find where you need to go and they're alone and so my mom will be on that journey so long as she lies within that landfill and so that's what i find so sad but it's also kind of beautiful to have those teachings to to come with you as well and um december was very 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 tough because we were just starting out we didn't really know what we were doing and for the longest time it was only it was only two guys staying there for months upon months we had lots and lots and loads of support and lots of coffee that came through but there's only so many people that are willing to brave that kind of temperature right and then we move spots from the back of the landfill to the front of the landfill. And that's where we started building the wigwam and the teepees, which is so beautiful because now we're reconnecting to our roots. And, and I think that in itself is so beautiful because it's a teaching in itself, learning that and the patience and the strength that comes with it and seeing what you, what you have built for, for what reasons. And after a certain amount of time, it becomes your home. And then we were looking at starting a second camp, which was Camp Mercedes at the Canadian Museum of Human Rights. And they actually gave us that space. We sat down with them and they said, well, because we said we were going to camp there. And then they got in (laughs) in contact with us because I guess they didn't want us to just go in all (laughs) cannons and all... Booming through, so they said, "Okay, no, we we have space. We'll show you the spaces, and then you guys can literally do what you want. You want to paint it? You want to put up teepees? You want to put up tents? This space is yours. This is the safe space." And so, yeah, we started Camp Mercedes, and so Camp Mercedes is for Mercedes Myron, who is actually believed to be buried, quite literally, in the same cell as my mother, Morgan Harris.
3: Hmm. As you said the second camp is called camp mercedes at yep. the canadian human rights museum at the forks here in winnipeg um you've built a beautiful um lodge there and um, people are gathering there to to remember their loved ones perhaps family members perhaps supporters how would you describe what's going on at that camp right now
5: camp mercedes is beautiful because the two camps have two very different types of energy can Mercedes? They're they're very focused on the sacred fire. The sacred fire, they they treat it with the most utmost love and care, and I absolutely love that they respect it so much and that they're so dedicated, dedicated to keeping this fire lit. Um, and it's a place for where people will just come down and they'll sing and they'll draw we've had lots and lots of drummers come through there people are always donating like red dresses to hang up and signs and banners and it's nice because there's a bridge that oversees camp mercedes so as people drive by they can see all the red dresses and like the search to search the landfill banners as well as over the Provence bridge where there's banners that say do you know their stories their souls are not at rest search mm. the landfill
3: Many people would maybe understand um, if you put down this fight and walked away, where do you find the strength to go on?
5: I think it's the discouraging comments that continue to push me. It's because I've had so many people doubt me throughout my life. And I've had, and people, they always say, well, this is what you're worth. This is what you can and can't do. This is, you're not going to be able to do it. And they try to instill that fear in you. And that's what they do to indigenous people that's what they do to the community they go and they tell other people this is what they're worth this is what they're like but nobody ever wants to come down and actually sit with us and and hear our stories and see us for for who we are and I think that's that's sad Um, so yeah I think I'm just gonna continue to to battle that and I don't know it's just it's hard it's frustrating and it's emotionally exhausting over the months, um, but my mind also is twenty four seven in fight or flight because I have no no spot to go visit my mother. If I want to go visit my mother, I have to go to the landfill. Everyone has a gravesite to go to or some kind of memorial they have, whether that be ashes, whether that be a spot. But I don't have that, and neither do the other families, um, as well as my my younger siblings. My mother was a she was a mom of five, and my youngest sibling is five right now. So what am I going to tell tell them 10 years from now? What am I going to tell her granddaughter, my three-year-old daughter, 10 years from now? This is where your grandmother is, and this is what happened, and this is what they say is okay? That's, that's wrong. And it said a President that it's okay to dump Indigenous women. It's okay to dump Indigenous people, and that they will not search for them in the future. So if something ever happens to me, they're not going to freaking search for me. They're not going to look for my daughter. And they can't see that connection.
3: Cambria, thank you so much for this time. Thank you. And thank you for being a warrior. Thank you. And I'm, and I'm really sorry that you have to.
5: Thank you, Miigwetch, for having me. I appreciate it.
3: Ambria Harris is the daughter of Morgan Harris. At 23 years old, she is one of the young women leading the calls to search the landfill.
1: Hi, I'm Danielle Pelche, and I'm just a supporter for Camp Mercedes. Um, The camp has been operating for about a month and a half now with uh, donations from the community members. There's people coming all the time to come and just be here and come and sit and enjoy the quietness and the calming of it. Uh, very special sacred fire and it helps the family and other community members come and they come and sit here and they drum and they eat together and they talk together. For me, I had a cousin when I was seven years old, we had lost uh, her name is Constance Lynn Cameron, and she was hurt. They found her body um, near Higgins Underpath, and they never did find who did that to her. The women are in danger here, and uh, it'll remain that way until things are you know, settled. And a lot of the community people have come already, come to visit and come to show the support.
3: That is Danielle Pelchier, one of the community members who continues to keep the sacred fire burning at Camp Mercedes. At this time, there is no plan to search the landfill. The man charged with first-degree murder in their deaths remains in custody. Those women are Rebecca Contois, 24, Morgan Harris, 39, Mercedes Myron, 26, and a fourth woman who has been given the name Mashkade Biziki Ikwe. Or Buffalo Woman. Before we leave, I want to play a clip from another national campaign for MMIWG2S+. From ten years ago.
2: There's girls with hands over their mouths, with the words "MI Next" written on the back of their hand.
3: It was featured on our very first episode of Unreserved.
2: There are girls holding their arms in a defensive stance, um, stance over their over their face, with the words "MI Next."
3: That's Holly Jarrett, the cousin of Loretta Saunders. Loretta was doing her thesis at Halifax's St. Mary's University. The subject, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Then on February 13th, Loretta herself went missing. Her body was found on the side of a highway in New Brunswick two weeks later.
2: I had had in mind the word ain't, which is uh, what we use as a term of endearment in reference only to people that we cherish and love dearly and it spelled a-i-n the words am i next were online in big black bold font as i was watching all of the girls pictures across my news feed on facebook and um listening to all of the community members i thought i really need to push something forward with this and then we found out about tina fontaine in winnipeg and i had just had enough i think
3: Polly asked other Indigenous women to pose an uncomfortable question. Am I next? She didn't have to wait long for the answer. Thousands of photos of Indigenous women bearing the hashtag Am I Next flooded Facebook and Twitter.
2: It allows a lot of room for people to say, who's next? Uh, will I be next? It allows room for everybody to express their concern and to, to use their voice.
3: That's Holly Jarrett, cousin of Loretta Saunders. Loretta was Enoch and was murdered in 2014. It's from our first show, 10 years ago. 10 years later, we're still talking about the same national crisis. It just goes to show how much more work needs to be done. And as so many guests on this show have told us, we all have a part to play. So thank you for joining The Circle for being with us as we share these important stories and as we head into the 10th season of Unreserved. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. This episode was produced by Kim Kasher, Rhiannon Johnson, Laura Bone-Steubing, Zoe Tennant, and me, Rosanna Deerchild. Remember, you can always find us in your favourite podcast places and on the CBC Listen app. I'm your favorite cousin coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory in Osaka, I go say.